0: When you, when you go through parts of the Old Testament, I think you'll come across, like tonight, um, commands that would seem especially challenging to carry out. And not because of just the personal requirement laid upon you as an individual Israelite to obey, but how it impacts the relationships you have in your midst. If you fulfill these commands, in other words, there are aspects of obedience to God that can be especially costly, especially demanding. And I think we see this in our passage tonight when in verse two, he says, put out of the camp. And he gives several qualifications that would would uh, warrant that that it's for both male and female in verse three, putting them out of the camp in the midst of which I dwell And then in verse four, they did so. And I can't imagine that was an easy thing to do, given that there are not age requirements or gender differences uh, in how this command is to be applied. But rather, whether they are male or female, if they have these particular elements of uncleanness, they are to be expelled from the camp. This must be an aspect of obedience that was difficult, not just on the interpersonal level, but even on the social sense of Israel's camp, knowing that there were people who were here last week who are right now outside the camp and for how long. Now, Numbers 5 is very different from the previous four chapters. Um, Numbers 5 is not a chapter about counting. And the first four chapters had a lot of counting. Um, We've gone through those chapters together, one sermon per chapter, and to lead up to chapter 5, I just want you to keep in mind that in Numbers 1, we're being prepared for the truth of a conquest of the promised land. That's coming, and they need warriors. And so they counted in Numbers 1, everybody 20 years old and up who was a male from the tribes of Israel. Males from all the tribes but Levi. And then in Numbers 2, we learn that as they march toward the promised land, they're not going to arrange themselves just any old way. They're to sleep in an encampment where there are three tribes on every side around the tabernacle, and they are designated which tribe belong the tabernacle sides. They can't even just choose which side they would prefer, but the Lord has determined the position of the tribes for the camp, including that when they disband the camp, They are to travel in a certain order during the march. A lot of very specific instructions to follow. In Numbers 3, the tribe of Levi gets some very special attention. And we learn that this tribe of Levi, while not being a warrior tribe in the conquest, they were a guardian tribe of the tabernacle. And if anybody sought to breach the camp of the Israelites or violate the sacredness of the golden and bronze vessels, the, the Levites were to put the breachers to death. We also learn in Numbers chapter 3 that the Levites would form a kind of buffer zone between the tabernacle and the actual tribes represented by dots around those four sides. In Numbers 4, we learn that the Levites have descendants according to the three sons of Levi, Kohathites, Gershonites, Merarites. And when the camp was to be disbanded, the tabernacle goes with them. It's not like some brief camp that you might imagine somebody where they set up, you know, this little, uh, this little uh, um, stick or limb-like structure, maybe with a, a small fire pit, and they know, you know, I just can't take all that with me. The tabernacle is the kind of thing that they build and take. They take everything. The tabernacle in all of its fullness must go with them, but it's going to be transported in a special way. The sons of Levi are going to have various responsibilities to take the various bronze and golden vessels if you're from a certain line. And then if you're from the other sons of Levi and their lines, you're going to transport the curtains and the structure, the fasteners, the bases. This transporting of the tabernacle was where our counting ends. In chapter 5, something new is introduced. This might seem like it's out of nowhere. Okay, well, all of a sudden we're given this instruction about expelling people from the camp. What's the connection between the first four chapters and this one where these opening four verses seem so different? One writer puts it this way. Commentators have often wondered why the section in chapter 5 follows directly on the heels of a census in chapter 4. But in reality, this writer says, the order makes sense One of the primary duties of the Levites is to guard the sanctuary and to keep defilement and profanation away from it. These these last two chapters of chapters 3 and 4 focused on the Levites who were to guard the sanctuary, to take careful care of its vessels, lest there be death in the camp, lest there be defilement of what God has ordered and instructed. Therefore, the subject of defilement and clean and uncleanness is an appropriate connection with the preceding information. So we come to um, a passage tonight in four verses. So while it's not a long passage, it is very heavy in its content of what it intends to communicate. And so don't let the length of it underwhelm you, we have certainly dealt with lengthy chapters. These four verses we're going to look at in two parts. Verses one to three, the command. Verse four, the obedience. The command in verses one to three, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, and what he said in verse two, command the people of Israel. Moses is a mediator. That's clear when it says in verse one, the Lord spoke to Moses. So Moses receives word from God and then God says to him in verse one, verse two, command the people of Israel. So if we look at the chain of command, the Lord has the authority over the Israelites. He's the holy king in their midst. And then he speaks to Moses, who then mediates that word to the people and the people are to obey Moses because to obey Moses is to obey God. And so that's that's how this works by the means of representation and mediatorship. If they were to reject the command of Moses, it is tantamount to rejecting the Lord. To refuse the leadership and instructions of Moses is to rebel against the Lord. Now, of course, Numbers is going to include in later chapters that very kind of thing. We get some encouraging results here. In chapter 5, verse 4, they will obey. It just will not remain that way. So in verse 2, command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp. Well, what does that even refer to? The camp is a shorthand way of saying the setup around the tabernacle. That's their camp. Now, how many feet or yards did that extend? Well, the, the books don't give you that kind of detail. Um, what it does tell us or the number or the particular tribes that are on each side of the tabernacle in their camp, but the centrality of Israel's camp is the tabernacle and to remind ourselves about that that's the portable wooden structure that represented the presence of God in their midst and had degrees of increasing holiness the further you went in. this camp, if I were to review just a few key things from Exodus and Leviticus, I would just want to remind us that this is an eastern entered Uh, structure so you enter it from the east and when you go into the tabernacle itself holy place hp here the holy place can only be entered by priests and then the most holy place the mhp can only be entered by the high priest once a year on the day of atonement exodus and leviticus lay out for you the increasing holiness in this tabernacle structure there's nothing magical about the wood, okay? There's nothing uh, superstitious or magical about the golden and bronze instruments. That's not the point at all. It's to say that with these instructions and the glory of God dwelling in their midst, these rituals and degrees or gradations of holiness communicate the approach of sinners to a holy God. That's what this symbolizes. So therefore the camp was a way of reminding the Israelites, even in their arrangement, God is the center of our communal life. That means you can be around the tabernacle in the camp, and you can also leave the camp. You can be considered outside the camp. If the most holy place is the locus or emphasized location of God's manifest glorious presence to which only the high priest can approach once a year behind the veil on the Day of Atonement, then the farther you get out from that, moving out those eastern entrances, it's reminding you of the Eden passage in Genesis 2 and 3, where from an eastern entrance, Adam and Eve were expelled from the presence of God in the garden. To approach the tabernacle or to dwell in the camp of Israel It's a way of God reminding his people, though you are not in Eden, I have come to dwell with you. Though we are not in a garden of Eden by the Tigris and Euphrates, I am taking you to a sacred space called the land of promise, which was known as the land of Canaan. If you were outside the camp, that was a positional place that symbolized impurity. Ritual impurity. So when he says command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp. Everyone who qualifies in the following ways. That means that they are to disassociate themselves for the time being. With several people who would fit these categories. And what he wants to highlight here. Everyone who is unclean. Unclean through leprosy which is a a kind of skin disease, the word leprous is probably too specific. Most Old Testament scholars would agree that something in general more like skin diseases is probably meant. And what we know as leprosy would be an example of that, but there's a spectrum. Leprosy would be an especially um, awful skin condition and disease. Leading up to that would also be skin diseases that would qualify here. Uh, So leprous, probably a little too specific as an English choice here. But then the second thing, those who have a discharge, and we'll think about that in a moment too. And then thirdly, everyone who's unclean throughout contact with the dead. Why these three categories? Well, we finished the book of Leviticus in 2020. It's 2022. It's June. It's the last Sunday evening of June of 2022, and uh, it it bears repeating that there is a chunk of Leviticus chapters 11 through 15 that address a unit of unclean and clean categories. What is that even talking about? Well, you might think of yourselves uh, with clean and unclean uh, in our culture as all right. I've got dirt on my hands, or I need to wash this off, make my hands clean. I've got something on me, some kind of grime or dirt. Clean and unclean were not terms applied to hands that were dirty. It was a ritual term. And they have a tabernacle. To be clean is to be declared you are ritually fit to approach the tabernacle. There is nothing about your person or behavior that has rendered you unfit to approach. So you would be considered clean. and and able and fit to approach the tabernacle. It was therefore very important that the priests remain clean. Not only were they required to approach the tabernacle, their work was at the tabernacle. It's very important that they remain clean. If you were ritually unclean through various kinds of uncleanness that the Bible talks about, you were unfit to approach. And for a time, certain uncleannesses would mean not only could you not approach the tabernacle... You couldn't dwell inside the camp until the uncleanness was resolved. And I know this may seem, this is very different from the way we think about, you know, Christian living from day to day. This is, this is a part of ritual uh, law and ceremonial activity that's not the kind of on-the-ground discipleship we are used to. What's all of this refer to? Clean and unclean is not an easily fitted mold or pattern Holy. I shouldn't say the word holy because it's above that. I'll speak to that in a moment. Clean or unclean is not a way of saying sinless, sinful, moral, immoral. Clean and unclean could be the result of things just out of your control. For instance, it's not like somebody is taking up the opportunity to say, I'd like a skin disease. I'm going to go and you know, do this. And all of a sudden they can find actually that there's something on their skin beyond their control. Similar to a discharge from a male or a female, knowing that there are very natural processes that could lead to a discharge, and it's not because of a fault of your own. And it's not because you've done something wrong. For example, childbirth in Leviticus twelve, part of that unit, renders a woman ritually unclean for several weeks, but it's not because she has sinned in giving the, uh, giving birth to a child uncleanness is connected in some way on the spectrum more toward death than toward life. If I were to put up one other spectrum here, on the left I would put the word life, and on the uh, the right side I would put the word death, because the closer you get to the tabernacle, the more of life and glory and fittedness is to be symbolized. And loss of fluid, loss of blood, or... Decay on one's skin or contact with the dead are things that associate you closer down the spectrum toward death. And if your behavior has in some way, either because of something your fault or not your fault, rendered you more in line with what would associate with death for the time being, you can't approach the tabernacle. Why? Because God is the God of life and God is the God of light. And God is a God of holiness. And therefore, if you have ritually become unclean, you cannot approach the God of life until you become clean again. So outside the camp is a way of saying there are boundaries and the unclean will dwell outside. Now, the top uh, spectrum, they're holy and common. This isn't a way of talking about right and wrong either. Holy is a title reserved, not just for the nation of Israel, but for Israel's priests, which represent them. Israel's priests, which represent them. And when you see the word common, that's not an insult. That's just to say you're not a priest. It's the non-priestly designation. So the Israelites in the camp were to be considered common. They had not been set apart for the holy instrument handling sacrifice offering work. They bring the animal, but the priests have a very involved and even inside the tabernacle and most holy place, if you're the high priest, kind of responsibility. So they are set apart as holy. They were anointed in Leviticus chapter 9. They had blood that was shed, anointing oil that was sprinkled on Aaron and his sons. That didn't happen for all the individuals of the Israelite camp. That happened for the priests. They were set apart. For days and days, these rituals were to communicate a sacredness of their office. They were holy. So the holy priests and the common Israelite, which is just a way, a non-offensive way, it is intended, uh, to speak of you being not a priest. But if you were among the Israelites, though you were not the holy priesthood, you were to remain in a state of ritual, cleanness, or not defiled. Now, There are specific categories referred to here in verse 2. The leprous, those with a discharge, and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. What does this refer to? Well, you could become ritually unfit or unable to now approach the tabernacle if, first of all, you had a skin disease. I mentioned earlier that the word leprosy is a little too specific in our English translations. I think it should be more general where you have various skin diseases, um, patches or scaliness to your skin that for the time being would render you unclean. Leviticus doesn't tell you um, everything about the uh, need to expel outside the camp people who have various uncleannesses. Numbers 5 gives you additional information. So when you read Leviticus 11 to 15, you also need Numbers 5. It elaborates on what needs to be expelled. Why would skin diseases be something identified? Well, let's just think externally for a moment of what's happening with skin disease. Whether there's an impression on the skin, some sort of callousness or, fading or uh, chipping away, some sort of scab or ooze. And I'm not trying to be overly graphic. It's just to say your skin is not right in that area. Something's wrong. And if that area is persistent enough, and if that area is spread enough, it can cause a kind of exterior appearance that can lead to... Um, what could uh, commonly be called in that day, it's as if you are the walking dead. It's as if they look to you and they see that genuinely in your physical appearance, you are unwell. Something is wrong from head to foot perhaps, and uh, or maybe just a part of the body. This skin disease, though not uh, limited to one particular part, but any parts of the body or over the whole makes it seem as if you are outwardly wasting away. It is an image of the forces of death at work in the world. That's the idea. The idea then is that in your appearance, something is wasting away. and needs to be restored. Now, Nearly all the skin diseases of the ancient world um, would not last the entire lifetime of these people. Um, Things could end up resolving. Things could end up healing. The priests in Leviticus were not doctors, though. Um, They would diagnose your situation and they would affirm, yes, you have this particular skin disease, but it's not like they could heal you. It's not like they could say, okay, now come over here, I'll lay my hand upon you, and you know, I'm going to pronounce you clean. No, that didn't happen in the days of the priests. It happens in the days of Jesus. And so the priests are not healers, they're diagnosticians. Is that the right word? And uh, after they pronounce what you have, they tell you you're going outside the camp. And then when you believe that is resolved, they will confirm that, and you're back into society. Uh, so that's the first category. Then the second category, discharge. Well, there are various reasons that uh, whether it's through the monthly cycle of the woman or through sexual activity, uh, there can be emissions and discharges of blood for both males and females that Leviticus chapter 15 talks about. I should say Leviticus 12 and 15. So, two passages, two chapters in that unit of Leviticus, designate the truth that in the bodies of men and women, there are discharges that represent loss. All right, so what's the deal about that? We've thought about the outwardly wasting away, this the skin disease topic is supposed to represent, what's the deal with the discharges of blood or emissions? Well, because emissions, let's say in particular, an emission of siemens to represent the potential for life, the loss of that would be the opposite of life. Or to say that uh, the loss of blood during the monthly cycle of the woman, if you think about how if you lose enough blood, that the emptying of your body of blood is to push you closer down the spectrum toward death, you can recognize, well, while anybody might have emissions and while anybody might have blood for different reasons, if you have enough of it, that loss of life becomes really paramount. In fact, you, you obviously know, as I do, that there are emergency situations that involve the emission of fluids and blood in somebody's body that have killed people. And that's because the loss of these fluids and blood don't represent the life end of things. It represents the the death end of things. It's the pouring out of life unto death. Now the life of the creature, the life of the flesh is in the blood, Leviticus tells us. And so the loss of that blood is movement toward death. That means, friends, that somebody who has this kind of discharge specified by Leviticus and elaborated on here... They are not on the life end of the spectrum and so are not ritually fit to approach the tabernacle. Not only are they unfit to approach the tabernacle, they have to be outside the camp. And then we're told in this third category, contact with the dead. Now again... This is not primarily a moral issue where you have done something wrong with contact with the dead. There is the case that you're not to uh, come across dead animals in Leviticus 11 and then approach the tabernacle. In Leviticus 11:24 24 and 25, if you come in contact with a dead animal, that carcass defiles you ritually. It doesn't designate you as sinning in that moment. It just means you can't approach the tabernacle. And so ritual... Unfittedness is not the same as committing a sin. Now you can be unclean morally. It's to say these rituals and these um, the losses of blood and discharges or skin diseases. That was not primarily due to you having done something that brought that about. But it does symbolize the larger truth about why these things even exist. Losses of life. Wasting away things that are dead. Well, this is a world of sin. And these ritual realities and these laws guiding and instructing and telling the Israelites what to do. These ritual truths symbolize the moral dilemma that sinners are in. They are reminded that they can be ritually fit or unfit to approach God. And God is holy and that pervading reality affects everything. It influences the way they should think about their lives. They shouldn't think to themselves, well, you know, though I've been sinning in all these particular ways and uh, haven't come in ta- contact with the dead, though, I'm fine to approach the Lord. No, they should understand the weightiness of what it means to dwell with God. And yet the ritual activities are to symbolize this. Uncleanness and cleanness are to symbolize the moral defilement that they have in their hearts. In other words, skin diseases, discharges, contact with dead carcasses or corpses. These things exist because we have a broken world and we are broken people in this broken world. Contact with the dead could involve a time of mourning. You would want contact with the dead if your dear one died and you have the privilege and responsibility of handling their remains, and you and others would mourn them, you would simply recognize for the following number of days, I'm ritually unclean because of my contact with the dead. But handling the dead loved ones is not something wrong. It does represent that something has gone wrong in the world. And so these ritual truths in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, they are just putting before us over and over again, don't you see that the world is broken? And don't you see that we long to be made new and whole? And these outward reminders are signals over and over again. Because it's not like there would ever be an Israelite who says, hey, you know what? i made it my whole life without ever being unclean. All of us. In the Israelite camp at some point would be unclean. So there's no bias there, is it? This truly would be instructions for every Israelite, male and female. There's no escaping it. They would all have a very personal reminder that we live in a world affected by sin. And that the brokenness that these rituals signal... Leaves us longing for the God who is holy to not only dwell with us, but to make us a kind of people that are clean on the inside. These ritual and ceremonial things were only for a time. This is part of the law that Jesus came to fulfill. Not only was Jesus fulfilling the commands of God and the moral law of God, he brought to an end its sacrificial, ceremonial, ritualistic instructions that these things certainly put their finger on. In other words, we're not saying, you know, if somebody has this or that or contact with the dead, they can't come, you know, to the worship service on Sunday morning. And no one's no one thinks that Um, no one wonders, you know, I went to a funeral this past week. Do I need to wait a few weeks before I go back to church? You know, that's not no one's thinking like that because that's not the new covenant community. But we do recognize the clean and unclean language in Matthew 15 when Jesus says it's not what goes into a man that makes them unclean it's what comes out what comes out of the heart and that wasn't just true in the new testament era these rituals these boundaries even very strange ceremonial activities they remind us where does our deep defilement lie it's in my heart and what i need is to dwell with god who i can approach that with my defiled heart i can be pardoned forgiven justified made new born again i need a mediator I need to be able to dwell with God in my sin, not be some perpetual hindrance to fellowship with God. All of these barriers reminded the Israelites they're not what they ought to be. There's outside the camp. There's around the camp. But if you're not a Levite, you can't even carry and transport the tabernacle when you disband. If you're not a priest, you can't go into the holy place. If you're not the high priest, you don't ever go behind the veil. All of these barriers and gradations of access were loud signals to the people that we cannot just approach God being who we are. God must be approached on God's terms. And our hope is that these temporal institutions and ceremonies are leading somewhere glorious. So to be unclean was not about being dirty in a physical sense, but being ritually unfit for worship. And you needed the priests who were holy to receive the Israelites who were common and were clean. Now, what verse 2 says is it tells us to put out of the camp those who have these categories. And what we learn in Leviticus 11 through 15 is that when the skin disease is resolved, whatever is fading away or problematic on the area, when that's resolved, you re enter the camp. Um, when the discharge ends, you re enter the camp. When the period of uncleanness after contact with the dead is over, you re enter the camp. So the goal is not separation from God, but reunion with and fellowship with God, but always with the reminder that we can be separated from the presence of God in this sense. It's a ritual reminder of a moral truth that after Eden, the big pervading problem for sinners is that God is holy and we are not. And the book of Numbers makes that loud and clear. Just after Leviticus and just after Exodus and all the way back to Genesis 1-1 where the God who is holy made a world. In verse 3, "...you shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp." This means... So you might think to yourself... Well, you know, if I have this particular skin issue and I can cover it up with this garment, who's going to know? Or if I have this particular discharge, who's going to know? It's not as if you as an individual Israelite would be publicly known in this state by everybody in the camp. There is what you might call an honor system to this to a degree. Now some skin conditions might be apparently obvious. Some uh, emissions might render someone uh, inaccessible for some time and some people scratching their head. Why haven't I seen so and so? What's going on with this? So I'm not saying you wouldn't eventually be found out to a point, but Even if not everybody in the Israelite camp knew what was going on, God knows. And so by living before the living God, you are accountable for these instructions because God is not without knowledge. And that means there is a sense of integrity that this calls forth from the Israelites a sense of openness and honesty, a sense of wanting to be faithful to the laws of God because God loves you, He is holy, He's come to dwell with you, and you are to take His Word seriously even if you found obedience difficult. And I think the longer we are Christians, the more we will realize as we study the Word of God and the commands of Jesus and the Gospel, the applications of the Gospel and the letters of Paul and others, we will recognize that the Christian life, by grace through faith, walking with Jesus in the light, has with it a costly obedience that Dietrich Bonhoeffer rightly described. That when Christ calls a man, Bonhoeffer says, he calls him and bids him come and die. Come take up your cross. And that image of costliness is appropriate because if these Israelites... Claim to know God, worship God, and did not care of the commands of God, did they really love and worship and honor God? It seems that they just did what they wanted to do. And if it was something they didn't want to do, then they ignored it. If God called them to something that was uncomfortable or not preferable, they ignored it. It puts us in a situation to ask our, ourselves, our hearts point blank, am I following the Lord? In areas that are not just covering what I'm most comfortable with and obedience that I prefer, but even with what seems costly, am I trusting him? The Israelites here are confronted with costly obedience. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp. Why is it that their camp could be defiled? Well, that's because it's not just any camp, is it? It's not like any camp you and I have ever been a part of whenever we've gone or traveled or slept anywhere in the outdoors. It says in verse 3, at the very end of it, and here's the moneymaker, it's in the midst of which I dwell. There it is. That is what explains why the camp can be defiled by the uncleanness of the people if not attended to. If they have uncleanness and don't deal with it, though it had not initially been a moral issue, it becomes one. And the reason it becomes one is not because their skin disease or their discharge or contact with the dead is their fault. It then becomes a moral issue because God has made commands and they've said, I will not follow them. And if they think the word of God does not apply to their situation, then they have made a moral issue what initially remained a ritual fittedness issue. God says, This camp is that in which I dwell. And that sets it apart. That sets it apart. It means this campus to be holy. This camp is to be comprised of Israelites who were ritually fit. Who attended to the elements of impurity that were signals of what reminded them we're in a broken world and we're broken people in this broken world. And no Israelite could ever go their whole life and say, oh, I've never had any impurity. It'd be a statement of total dishonesty. It's like what John has to address in 1 John 1 and 2. If, if someone says, oh, well, I've never sinned. Well, they lie and they don't live by the truth. It's to remind us of our moral defilement with which the Lord deals later in his word. Now, the obedience of the uh, Israelites is highlighted after the command. So verses 1 to 3, the command, and then verse 4, a brief statement about their obedience. And the people of Israel did so. They They put them outside the camp. As the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. We look at this and we see they have engaged then in a costly obedience. They followed through. This could not have been easy. This would have meant women separated from their husbands. This would have meant fathers separated from their children. This would have meant neighbors and friends separated from time, for uh, periods of time. This would have been logistically, practically difficult. The relational implications are not small. And yet the obedience of the people is highlighted here. We would love if this obedience was the trajectory for the rest of the book. But they're starting well. As the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. Now what's remarkable, when you trace the storyline of Scripture out of the Old Covenant and into the New Covenant ministry of Jesus, all of this language of clean and unclean and the Levitical laws and the regulations and numbers about who's in and who's out, all of this stuff informs the ministry of Jesus. I love the Gospels more because of studying the opening books of the Old Testament. It is astounding how much Leviticus and Numbers helps us see better, with clearer light, the ministry of Jesus. For example, Numbers 5 gave you three categories, right? The leprous, those with discharge, and contact with the dead. Well, listen, there are miracles associated with each of those topics. Think about this with me. It's amazing. And it's different in the new covenant work of Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't go around exiling and expelling the ritually unclean. He brings them in and restores them. This is so different. And the surpassing glory of Jesus' work over against Numbers is what helps us not only understand where Numbers is going, it helps us see the surpassing glory of the new covenant work of Jesus in the backdrop of books like this. For example, here comes a leper in Matthew 8. And the leper's approaching Jesus. You didn't do that in Leviticus 11 to 15. If you had those skin diseases, you didn't approach somebody. You were to be outside the camp. And this leper comes up to Jesus and he says what you'd never say to an Old Testament Levite priest. He says to Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. It's an amazing statement. Jesus says, I am willing. Reaches out his hand which you did not do because you would be ritually defiled. But what if there was someone in whom was such a fountain of life and purity that he would not be defiled, but instead make the unclean clean? So Jesus touches the leper and He says, I am willing, be clean. And there's a story later on in Matthew 9 where Jesus is approached by a woman with an issue of blood for 12 years. Oh, how that would have impacted her life. Think about Leviticus 11 to 15 and Numbers 5. Here is a woman whose livelihood, whose finances, whose relationships have been continually impacted by this. And she says, if I could just touch the hem of his garment. Now he assures her there's nothing magical about the garment. He says to her, your faith has made you well. But she's healed. She touches him and we are told immediately, immediately the discharge of blood stops. After 12 years, we're told about contact with the dead. I mean, Jesus raises a young boy in Luke 7. He raises Lazarus in John 11. He raises a young girl in Matthew chapter 9. We're told in Matthew 9, the healing of the woman with the discharge and the raising of a dead girl in one sandwiched story. So powerful. Especially in light of Leviticus and Numbers. He goes into the house of the dead. Oh, and yes, he makes contact with her. He goes up and he takes the hand of the dead girl. And he calls her to rise. So what's different about the ministry of Jesus in light of these Old Testament priestly instructions and Israelite encampment obedience. Is that these were issues that could not be remedied by the priests. So you have a greater priest in Jesus. Here's a priest who not only knows our defilement, he knows what to do with our defilement. And all of those ritual restorations, those ceremonial cleansings, the the bringing together of these people back to their society, their community, their families, their friends, all of the restoration is announcing a larger truth of conquest. Jesus has come to bring to the world what the broken world needs. He's come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's what He's come to do. And the Gospels just pop with beauty and clarity when we see more of what's happening in Leviticus and Numbers and where this was leading. It leaves you longing in Numbers 5 to not be outside the camp. And then we're told with this language in Hebrews chapter 13 what Jesus does on the cross. And this language is appropriate. He says in and Hebrews 13.13, 13, or let me put it this way: uh, Hebrews thirteen will start in verse uh, eleven. Hebrews thirteen eleven. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, those bodies of the animals are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. I just want you to notice, where does Jesus die? He doesn't die behind the veil in the most holy place. Jesus dies outside the city, outside the gate, in the realm of the rejected and the criminal and the criminal element. Those that would have been considered defiled and under the judgment of God. Let's put it this way. You and I, morally speaking, deserve to go outside the camp, so Jesus went outside the camp in our place. Hebrews 13 pops into greater clarity with language in Leviticus and Numbers filling that in. In all these cases and more, Jesus begins to show in his miraculous ministry restoration and surpassing glory. The new covenant is better than the old. And though the old covenant, according to 2 Corinthians 2 and 3, had with it a kind of appropriate glory and brilliance for its time, there's an unfading glory and surpassing brilliance to the work of Jesus in the new covenant that is greater. All of this leads us to think about what Christ has inaugurated. He has made us a people who are new. He has gathered us to be a church that is to seek holiness, for we are a people holy. And we are heading toward, as pilgrims, heading toward a celestial city, a new Jerusalem, that has no impurity or uncleanness. This language in Revelation 21, I think, uh, fits the same kind of background. In Revelation 21, when John writes about this new Jerusalem, this place of dwelling with God that is our Christian hope, he says, they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations and nothing unclean will ever enter it. That's such good news. Because the readers of Revelation who know the Old Testament, they know what happened in the garden They know the creeping thing that entered and the uncleanness that defiled and the image bearers that rebelled. They know what it was like for something unclean to defile. They know what it means for sacred space not to be guarded. And so this tabernacle is a way of God saying, guard the sacred space and we're heading toward a promised land and ultimately a new heavens, a new earth, a new Jerusalem in which nothing unclean will ever dwell. And it's not because there are gradations and barriers. We will dwell with unmediated access to our triune God in all unending joy and light that is our future. Let's pray.